0: So, Mark. Yeah? This movie introduces us to our title character as she is rushing to catch a bus, which she then sits on chatting with her gal pals.
1: A great way of introducing a character. So many of my interests. Gossip, friends, public transportation. What more do you need?
0: It's fantastic. So I was wondering, in light of that, do you have any favorite movie scenes on buses?
1: So, the first thing I thought of does not take place on a bus so much as in front of a bus, which is the scene in Mean Girls in which Regina George gets hit by a bus. <laughs> because it is so out there, so unexpected, that I thought it was fake until they show that she was actually hit by a bus. I thought it was her imagination or something the first time I watched it. Yeah. Yeah. So in the summer of 2018, I was in Chicago for a week
0: and I played trivia at this bar and they didn't do a music round. They did an audio round where it was audio from like eight or 10 or whatever, different movies from scenes related to buses. And you had to
1: identify the movie based on that sound. That honestly sounds very fun. A really nice way of doing something like a music round. But giving people that are not good at music rounds a shot. Well, yes, when you replace the music round with a movie round, I suddenly crush it. Granted, Catherine and I did pretty
0: great last time we did trivia. Yeah, no, you you really came in there. But so the, the two that I really remember were, there was the audio of Tobey Maguire chasing the bus in the original Spider-Man, and then the other one, it just sounded like people singing Tiny Dancer. And luckily, I had recently watched Almost Famous to know that there
1: is a scene in that where everyone's just on the bus singing Tiny Dancer. I mean, I feel that as a child, I sang on the bus, but it was usually not a actual song. What were you singing? Well, I mean, there was 99 bottles of beer on the wall where we'd get through about two before people were like, this is boring. I don't know why it starts so high. (laughs) It is so long. It's designed to kill time.
0: I know. But it's not that exciting. I think that Almost Famous scene is probably my favorite, though, because it is just so joyful. And it's fun to watch people
1: having a good time. That is true. But somehow, Mean Girls, someone gets hit by a bus and you're so shocked that you laugh, even though it's entirely inappropriate, which I enjoy. Yeah, you're supposed to laugh at that. It is designed for it, but also it's still a teenage girl getting hit by a bus. A teenage girl played by a 30-year-old woman. (laughs) That's the thing about that movie. I love that they cast Rachel McAdams because she is so noticeably older than everyone else that it spins around to being funny again. Now, unfortunately, no, fortunately, no one in this movie gets hit by a bus. Yeah, I would go with fortunately there. Yeah. But
0: I do think there is a lot of good stuff for us to talk about in it, so I think we should get underway, probably.
1: Yes. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I am Mark, and I am Gay.
0: And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance make any sense?
1: And are these people
0: actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week... We are looking at John Barry's 1974 romantic comedy, Claudine, starring Diane Carroll and James Earl Jones.
1: A movie I had never heard of, but I very enjoyed it.
0: I only knew about it because when the Criterion edition came out last summer, our favorite writer, uh, Caroline Side, wrote a column about it in her When Romance Met Comedy column at the AV Club. And I read it and I was like, this movie sounds kind of great. We should do it on the podcast.
1: The acting in this movie is so good.
0: It's so very good. Diane Carroll did get an Oscar nomination for this movie, which is cool to know because it's the kind of small, largely independent production that wouldn't often be recognized in that period.
1: Right. It's still, it is the end of the studio era, but this is a very small film from what I understand.
0: Yeah. It was made for about a million dollars by a company called Third World Cinema, that had been founded by Ossie Davis and Rita Moreno and other Black and Hispanic performers to try to develop films with major roles for actors of color. So this was their first movie released. They eventually only made two. The other was Greased Lightning, a Richard Pryor vehicle about auto racing. But the company eventually closed down when the Urban Improvement grants that had been funding it dried up.
1: That's so dumb.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I was reading some New York Times coverage from the time about third world cinema, and it's kind of a bummer to read executives in 1975 talking about how they haven't made as many movies as they wanted, because investors think that movies about black people have a limited audience, so the investors won't put up the money. And it's like, oh, that is the same conversation we are having today, almost 50 years later.
1: And it is still untrue.
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, this movie comes
1: out a year or two after Shaft. It's insane, It's so provably false. I just don't understand the logic.
0: It's like, well, sure, maybe if you don't put any resources behind, like, making movies well and advertising them well, then people don't show up to them. But that is not a black movie thing. That's a how you're distributing your resources thing.
1: Right. And when there is production behind it and the movie is advertised, people go see it. Right. Now, while Third World Cinema only made two movies, and a couple of TV specials.
0: Its real success was that they set up training programs to teach people of color how to do film technical work, and they trained hundreds of people who continued working in Hollywood long after Third World Cinema closed down.
1: That's awesome.
0: Yeah. Um, Actually, one of the founders of the company was Diana Sands, who originated the role of Benita in A Raisin in the Sun on Broadway and in film, and she was originally cast as Claudine, but she collapsed on set after a week of filming, they rushed her to the hospital. It turned out she had a serious case of pancreatic cancer. She died within a month. But during that period, she's the one who really pushed producers to hire Diane Carroll, who she knew
1: from the black acting scene in New York. I That's wild. Yeah. I can't believe that is so fast. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's crazy that, wow, I'm very thrown by that. But Diane Carroll is amazing in this movie. She's incredible. And it's not like
0: she was coming out of nowhere at this point. Oh, I know. She had already been the first black woman to win a Tony for Best Actress in a Musical. And she had won a Golden Globe and been Emmy nominated for her TV show Julia, which was the first weekly series to star a black woman who was not playing a servant.
1: It was, oh my God. (laughs) Wasn't that show in like this early 70s? It premiered in 1968. Oh my God. That's, I, everything is terrible, except this movie.
0: (laughs) Which is great. James Earl Jones also had a Tony at this point for The Great White Hope, and he was Oscar nominated for the film adaptation, which made him the only black man besides Sidney Poitier to have been nominated for Best Actor.
1: He's also very good in this movie. He's so good in
0: this movie. It's fun to
1: see him this young. It is cool to see him this young and actually in the movie as compared to him being young in Doctor Strange Love, but barely in it. Right,
0: yeah. I mean, Dr. Strangelove, he almost, like, barely registers, but it's, it's weird to watch this movie and be like, oh, James Earl Jones is young, and then think, oh, this is three years before Star Wars. Because
1: in my brain, like, James Earl Jones in Star Wars looks like James Earl Jones today. But it's not that, like, he is still young by Star Wars, so it's interesting, because he is not how I picture him. Exactly. Like, my first image of him is basically, like, Lion King era, even though he is not in that movie. Right, but at I least, mean, like, physically coming to America. Right. James Earl Jones. Yeah. He is given the most impressive dick hiding montage I have seen in a long time.
0: It is quite impressive, right? They just they're always finding like what's the smallest thing that we can put in
1: front of his penis. Right. They managed to just block the smallest area in every scene where he's walking around disposing of a mouse caught in a mouse trap. I like when he salutes the mouse as he flushes it down the toilet. Me too. I also like how they use her leg up under the sheet in the last one right before he climbs in. You do get a few shots of James Earl Jones butt in this. You do.
0: Yeah. This is a hot movie.
1: Yeah. And I appreciated the craft that went into that scene. Yeah.
0: It's directed by John Barry, who's the son of Jewish immigrants in the early 20th century. He You know, speaking of experimental groups, we were talking about third world cinema john barry worked with the mercury theater in the 1930s and he followed orson welles to hollywood as a director for paramount unfortunately he was named as a communist to huac but he 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 had been a member of the party during the spanish civil war and that ended his hollywood career he fled to france and he lived out the rest of his life in france but starting in the mid-60s he would occasionally return to the u.s to shoot movies which is what he was doing when he was shooting claudine
1: was this filmed in new york Yes. It is an extremely New York movie.
0: Yeah, in the spirit of like 70s New York cinema like Shaft or some of the early Scorseses and things like that.
1: I was reading some clips from reviews and one thing that one review pointed out that I really liked is this is a movie about actual people. It was like it's not a super cop or a superhuman or a super pimp. It is just people struggling to survive in Harlem in the 70s. Which is
0: what a lot of reviews noted. Like, this is a movie just about Black people living and finding, you know, romance and joy and comedy, but also the struggle of that in this period.
1: Right, and they make mistakes, they're flawed, they're not Sidney Poitier in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, they are people trying their hardest in a situation designed for them to fail.
0: It's striking to, like, look at all this, the extent to which, you know, it's recognized by critics... The movie was a decent hit. It made, like, $6 million against its $1 million budget. Diane Carroll was nominated for an Oscar. The screenplay was nominated for Best Comedy by the WGA. Carroll and Jones were both nominated for Golden Globes. So, like, the movie was a financial success. It was a critical success. It was recognized by awards groups. And the extent to which it then, like, disappeared.
1: Right. I They didn't try and recreate it at all, as far as I'm aware.
0: I mean, that's not even something I really thought about. Like, you could... You could remake this movie and people wouldn't realize it was a remake and it would probably be a good movie.
1: And you could just do a very similar situation. I mean, there are so many of the same stories about two white people struggling in New York and falling in love. So you could do the same formula, rom-com, but about black people. <laughs> I mean, white people struggling like on this class level wasn't just happening
0: with Claudine this year. I mean, Diane Carroll lost the Oscar to Ellen Burstyn in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Which is a movie about a white woman who's struggling to get by.
1: Right. And I mean, most rom coms are about rich people, even today. Rom coms. Yes. Even black rom coms today are about wealthy people. But I guess it's because this is also not a pure rom com. It is a rom dramedy. A term that more people should use. There is no easy way to have that genre roll off the tongue. <laughs> rom dramedy.
0: Rom-comma. The other big piece of this movie that we have not talked about is the
1: music. Oh, it's which was so written, good.
0: was written by Curtis Mayfield and is performed by Gladys Knight and the Pips.
1: I, they just got the best.
0: That's the thing. And you imagine that was a little bit easier because this is the first project from this big new, I mean, not big, but the first project from this
1: corporation designed to champion black artists. It's also the tail end of their fame, too. This is not yeah. their, it's not Gladys Knight at her peak. But it, it sounds great. But I mean, she's still obviously a perfect talent.
0: And the album itself was a hit. The theme song On and On ultimately was a number five hit on the Billboard 100 and number two on the R&B charts.
1: It's a good song.
0: Yeah. Why
1: would it it's not? good music.
0: What's wild is thinking about how much this movie is recognized as like the answer to exploitation, a more realistic thing. Curtis Mayfield also wrote the soundtrack to Superfly.
1: Hey, work is work. And it's good work. I mean, this is a movie where the songs would not last long enough for me. They would have a little bit of the song playing, and then they would cut, and it's the sound on the TV or someone listening to the radio. I would, I was thinking, you could keep that playing for a bit longer. <laughs> we could hear some more of that music. I don't mind. It was good. It is interesting how much of the music does get turned into, I don't know, what the t- it's diegetic music, yeah. where it's like actually in the scene. Yeah, I enjoy that. They do some really good transitions. And you can always
0: tell from the sound mix when it's supposed to be non-diegetic and when it's supposed to be something that's existing in the world of the movie. But it transitions really well. And I think it always does a good job of giving us a sense of, like, what is happening in the world of the movie. You know, a record playing in Rupert's apartment does sound different than the radio at Claudine's.
1: Or the TV when the kids are watching and dancing along to the TV. Yeah. There are so many children. (laughs) Six is so many kids. That's one away from The Sound
0: of Music. Oh my god. A movie about people who notably have many children.
1: It is stressful. Every scene with the kids in it is stressful. They did such a good job with that. It's a lot of kids and not a lot of space. It's so chaotic. And also, almost all of her kids are so rude. I think the strength of the movie,
0: though, is that you can look at these circumstances and be like gosh, this is so frustrating. And like, to a certain extent, like, thank goodness, I don't have six kids in that tiniest space. But the movie is like simultaneously aware of stereotypes and also not forcing anybody into boxes and not judging the main characters for where they are in their lives.
1: I mean, it's a movie subverting stereotypes consciously. It is trying to show the welfare queen. I don't know if that term had been invented, but it was still kind of around. There's a reference to it in the movie. Claudine jokes about herself being a welfare queen. I guess, yeah, she does use that term. I think of it more as under Reagan, but it shows that it's clearly just not true, especially if you have six children.
0: Right. Claudine cannot support her family on the salary from her job. She cannot support her family on the money provided through the welfare system, but it's also illegal for her to have both pools of
1: money. And the system is just so rooted in the sexist heteronormativity of the era. That as soon as she has a man in her life, regardless basically of his income level, welfare is cut off for her.
0: As Rupert puts it at one point, them getting married would take the government off the hook and put me on.
1: Right. Because it all goes based off of his salary too. And like, he's living off of his salary and isn't living a terrible life, but a single man is very different than a family of seven.
0: It would be a family of eight if he were a part of it.
1: Yeah, a family of eight. Nine, eventually. Her daughter gets pregnant. That is where the night comes from.
0: Yeah, but she's going to go live with Abdullah.
1: Oh, yes. I love every time she calls him Teddy and then remembers.
0: Right. It's funny. But it also is a reminder of how young these kids are.
1: Yes. How old is her daughter supposed to be? The ages are never super clear of the children.
0: Yeah. She's a teenager, but you don't have a sense of, like, quite how old she is. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think she's, like, 16-ish.
0: That's what I would guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, clearly not old enough to live on her own.
0: And that's the thing where, like, what's happening with a lot of the kids, and even kids who are off-screen, like Teddy slash Abdullah, they are trying to assert a particular identity for themselves and, like, sort of claim a space in the world for themselves in a world that has very little interest in them and, like, Really, the the main interaction we see of the kids with the outside world is whenever Miss Kayback comes over and they're, like, putting on this, frankly, hilarious show of, like, oh, hello, Miss Kayback. How are you today?
1: I loved the scenes with Miss Kayback.
0: It's it's quite funny. And that's the strength of the movie is it's able to pull real comedy. You know, it's not the Marx Brothers where they're, like, doing setup punchline jokes, but it's pulling real situational comedy out of a, frankly, kind of dehumanizing experience.
1: Oh, completely. And she does such a good job of pointing out how dehumanizing it is by comparing it to the life that the social worker leads.
0: There's the whole sequence where Miss Kayback is over asking Claudine, like, I heard there's been a man coming around. Like, what's the deal with that? Has he been giving you stuff? We've got to deduct that if that's a thing. And Claudine's like, you have a guy over, he brings you a bottle of wine. Like, a guy comes over, he brings a six pack. Like, there you go. That's a buck fifty.
1: You want one? (laughs) And then Miss Kayback writes that down. She does. I know she deducts that. One thing I also appreciated is the workers at the welfare office and the cops are generally black people as well. Yes. Which is a very interesting touch because the workers at the welfare office even are not sympathetic.
0: Right. And it gets at something this movie is aware of in other places too, like when they visit the like community center and they're looking for Charles- There are all these different people who have different ideas about what the best way forward is, and for many of them, they're like, there is one way forward and we should follow this and kind of look askance at people who have other ideas.
1: Right. The conflict of the era is very apparent in this movie, and I also appreciated how it shows that even among her community, her situation is still looked down on because she has six kids, and everyone says it is her fault that she has six kids. There's no other person involved. Right,
0: exactly. So given all this, should we should we talk a little bit about the romance of Claudine? Get a little James Earl Jones in here?
1: Oh, yes. Because the romance is the main plot of this film. Right. <laughs> Unlike last week, it follows a plot.
0: What? Shocker.
1: So every week we break down the romantic plot line of a movie into five distinct points. Just to guide the conversation, Will, why don't you take us to point one?
0: All right, so we're introduced to Claudine, like we said, as she's rushing to a bus. There's this great, like, nonverbal verbal sequence, as our, our great score by Gladys Knight is playing. And she's, like, quickly, like, signing forms for her kids and, like, sending them off in the directions of their schools. She hops on the bus, and she's chatting with her friends about how stressed she is, and she, like, can't sleep super well, and she's having a hard time focusing on stuff. And one of her friends tells her that her problem is she is in need of some vitamin F. I lost it at vitamin F.
1: And I also love the line, do you think women's equality movement was for the right to vote?
0: No, it's for the right to... Also sleep around. (laughs) Yes. So our real point one is this early flirting and dating, which begins at work. She works as a a housekeeper in the suburbs for a white family, and one day she brings out some grapefruit to the hot garbage man Rupert, played by James Earl Jones.
1: I know I'm just an ugly old smelly old garbage man, you see me all clean up, you won't believe your eyes. So You know, I've been steadily on taking you out for a long time. But What about that girl? I don't think so. Oh, you don't want me to beg you, do you, baby? And you can tell it's not the first time that he has seen her and lusted after her, but it does seem like their longest conversation.
0: Yeah, and he pretty quickly is like trying to get her to go out with him like hey come on i'll pick you up he like sort of threatens to turn her in for welfare fraud if she doesn't agree
1: yeah i didn't love that
0: and you're like this could be a joke but i'm not certain that it's a joke
1: it's the implication
0: she eventually does agree and that night he shows up at her apartment to pick her up but unfortunately she's been held late at work which meant that she missed the bus so she had to wait for the next bus she's getting back pretty late she's like look we should postpone like by the time i like deal with my kids, and then take a bath and, like, get dressed, like, it's gonna be a pain. We're not gonna be able to go out. And he keeps insisting, like, no, we should do it, we should do it, we should do it. He has this amazing line where he says, I'm the expert on funky, you smell like a field of flowers to me.
1: I appreciated the touch of the kids refusing to let him in because he is a strange man. Yeah. And so he has to sit in his car for a while, too, but he's still pushing. Rupert's relationship with the kids is a key one in the movie and is always fascinating. It's very interesting
0: but so anyway that night he convinces her like look you know what like don't even worry about what's going on at your place like grab some clothes you can take a bath at my place and then we'll go around the corner to the restaurant and they go over and claudine having her first bath in well over a decade where there was no kid demanding time from her falls asleep in the tub
1: <laughs> it was such a good touch
0: right because it's another thing where like she's in the tub rupert puts on the music sits down it's another great use of score in this movie, where we transition then to the sequence of Rupert still sitting there, and the music has stopped. And you're like, that conversation you were bringing up about the music transitioning between diegetic and non-diegetic, and you're like, wait, what happened here? And what clearly happened is, the record ran out.
1: Right. The record stopped, and it played the whole way through, and his position changed from a seductive lounge to just a normal sit.
0: Like a schlump.
1: And then he goes in and it's just like, are you okay? Did you drown? And he finds her asleep. And so instead of dinner out, they decide to just order in and get fried chicken
0: delivered. So they do that. They're having a nice night. Claudine enjoys some women's equality.
1: (laughs) And then she gets home at four in the morning.
0: Yeah. And they have a conversation during that evening. Basically, like, we are both old enough. We have enough kids. Like, we could be straight with each other. She frames it entirely as like, We'll have a nice time, and when it ends, we go our separate ways, and and we have nice memories.
1: They agree, basically, to keep it extremely casual. But it's a movie, so you know that will not happen.
0: Yeah, but they continue to date fairly casually for a while. although Also, frankly, seeing each other most days, it
1: seems like. Right. It's hard to tell, honestly, the full time frame of this movie. Yeah. But I appreciated... All of the scenes of him coming over, especially in the early days when the kids just hate his guts. Right, they would all like move off the couch if he tried to sit down. They refused to answer the doorbell when he rang it. Well, they just didn't hear it, Mark. Oh, of course, they didn't hear it. I love when he wouldn't get up to let the kid with the ice cream in. What bell? I don't hear a bell. So this really takes us to point number two, which is as
0: Rupert is getting closer to Claudine, he tries to to reach out to the kids
1: because if this is gonna work at all, the kids need to, at minimum, not hate him. Right. They have to be willing to let him into the apartment. You
0: know what you just did? You added, subtracted, multiplied, and divided all in your little heads. This shit about no math potential, boy. You get yourself back to school. I get you walking out on yourself. About kick your ass. That's your thirty-five cents. Hey, man, you owe me three cents. And so we have a couple of different sequences where, for example, he's reaching out to the one kid who is like borderline nonverbal, but likes to draw. And so he's like asking the kid about his
1: drawings. I also enjoyed the scene where he goes and finds the kid Dicing, who's like 10 this is years the best old. Scene. The kid who has announced that he wants to quit school because he's got no
0: math. <laughs> it's it's like a, it feels like an afterschool special.
1: It really does. And you see him Dicing with like men in their 40s. <laughs> under a bridge like 10 year old and also like i gotta say this movie
0: made it very clear to me i do not understand the rules no i do not understand what game they are playing at all sometimes the seven is good sometimes the seven is bad but (laughs) rupert just shows up he's like throwing around dollar bills he appears to ultimately win all of it
1: or pay off the kid's debt i think he like wins enough that the kid is no longer in debt
0: and so then as they're walking away Rupert's asking the kid about, like, how much he won and lost.
1: And then he's like, see, you just did math. You should stay in school. And he bonds with the kid over this. (laughs) Honestly, I really appreciated how he didn't just, like, stop the kid. He actually played along to establish a connection.
0: It was a better move.
1: And so he bonds with the other kids as well. And he and Claudine, as a result, do grow closer. And it becomes a bit more serious. Right. As we learn,
0: he also starts, like, because he is only supporting himself. I mean, we're told that he's paying some degree of child support, but for the most part, supporting himself. He is also able to like, buy some nicer appliances, like a better toaster that hasn't been destroyed by a kid trying to make a cheese sandwich in it.
1: And the issue of his kids does cause some tension because he is basically acting like one of her exes towards his own kids, which she's not thrilled about when she finds out. And this tension really comes
0: to a boil in point number three, because the issue is Rupert wants to be with Claudine, but he doesn't want to be accountable to the welfare
1: system. They go to the welfare office and it shows how confusing everything is and makes it clear that getting married would make him on the hook completely for everyone.
0: Now, if I marry this lady,
1: I want to make things better. But if I spend a dollar on it, you're going to deduct it from her, right? If I want to buy a little something extra, you're going to deduct it. And I better report every penny I spend or else I'm a crook.
0: Okay, now you say if I lose my job, I must apply for welfare because I can't just sit around eating the government's biscuit, which is fraud. It's called, that's a fraud, right? Okay, now if I do go into welfare, then I'm just another lazy ass nigger living off taxpayer. All right, now. Suppose I do not marry this lady. Now, if I move in with her and do not
1: tell you, then we're both crooks, right? But if I do tell you we back to the income and the outcome and the, and the deducting. And you drive me to drink.
0: And you call a fraud if I spend $7 for a bottle of whiskey. It's a system that punishes the people who are in it, but also doesn't provide an obvious way out.
1: Right. It keeps them trapped in the system without showing any way forward. But Charles is opposed to this because he sees it as a system that keeps people dependent, which I find interesting. Charles is her youngest son, who is very active in the Black empowerment community. Charles is the oldest son. Did I say youngest? You did. I meant oldest. (laughs) He, I think, is 18, because she had him when she was 18, and she is now 36. So there are
0: a couple of conflicts that rise up out of this tension for Rupert. I love when... He is in the apartment when Miss Kayback, the social worker, shows up. And so, first he's hiding in the bathroom and then he tries to move to hide in a closet, but Miss Kayback sees him. So, then he introduces himself as Simpson X. Like Malcolm X. Malcolm X, I'm Simpson X.
1: And this is the scene where Diane actually does eventually break and shows all of the appliances he's bought that she'll need to deduct from her weekly amount.
0: And eventually, Claudine is like, look, maybe we should call this off. Like, you clearly are uncomfortable with being a part of the welfare system. I cannot not be a part of this system. And he's frustrated because he's like, no, I want to be with you. I just don't want to be in all this.
1: Which is also understandable because it's extremely complicated.
0: Right. It, it is complicated and impersonal and invasive.
1: Right. And he would have to deal with this for the first time because he's been able to support himself. But as we will learn soon, not really as kids, off of his salary as a garbage man. So nonetheless... As they're leaving
0: the welfare office when he first goes and they, like, talk about, like, what it would mean to get married, he gets mad, Claudine thinks he's done, and he basically is, like, dealing with all of this is worth it to be with you. Right.
1: And they decide to stay together. Unfortunately, that does not seem to hang together for long. (laughs) Because this does follow the romance movie plotline where they have to have a huge fight before reconciling, obviously. Right, the Rom-Dramedy formula. The Rom-Dramedy. So, he is served with papers, right? Yeah, while he's at work. While he's at work for underpaying child support. And his response is basically
0: like, I have to underpay child support or I cannot support myself. Right. And
1: again, this just shows the inherent difficulty that the government has placed on the black population.
0: And he's really frustrated about it. He's like quite angry. Claudine doesn't entirely share his anger because she's like, well, yes, you have to support your kids.
1: Yeah. Because she is doing the same thing. She doesn't have enough money to support herself and six children, and yet she is doing what needs to be done.
0: So anyway, she's like, look, I know you're feeling angry about the situation, and you also feel like you're a crappy dad, which you are, but my kids think really highly of you, and I'm not supposed to tell you this, but they are basically throwing you a Father's Day party.
1: Which is extremely touching.
0: It's very sweet.
1: And yet, (laughs) he does not show up.
0: You boys looking for Rupert? Yeah. He moved. Oh, where?
1: I don't know. I saw him take his things out this morning. It does seem like a nice party. Yeah. They're having fun before he arrives. And then eventually she pulls the, I guess he's not coming. Everybody eat move, which is the quintessential. I'm giving up on a person showing up to the party move.
0: And two of the kids take their bikes over to try to find him.
1: And he has moved out of his apartment.
0: Claudine tries calling him and the line is disconnected.
1: He is gone, gone. Right, he has disappeared. She
0: tries showing up to his work and being like, hey, have you seen Rupert at all? And one of his friends is like, no, he called in sick, but we only get five days off a year, so he has to show up at some point. And yet,
1: <laughs> it seems like he is gone. He is gone. Until, unfortunately, Charles finds him in a bar. There's like effectively a bar fight scene that is
0: shot really interestingly. It looks like handheld cameras.
1: Right, and it's also interesting because this bar has, like, a gospel choir singing. Yeah, you know, as one does. as At a bar? It's like the clogging bar from Trouble with the Curve. Oh, God. So they get into a fight and end up, you know, brawling out on the street, essentially. And Charles is telling him, like, I mean, literally
0: when they first met, Charles said, For every tear my mom cries for you, I'm taking a pint of blood.
1: <laughs> Which is a harsh line.
0: And what Charles basically here is saying is, like, You screwed with my mom. What
1: the heck? And I think it's around this point that Claudine discovers that her daughter has been hiding a pregnancy, which does not go over too well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Claudine is really upset because she feels like her daughter now is going to wind up in the same situation that she's in.
1: Right. But she does eventually calm down and accept it. But the fight with Charles brings us to point five.
0: One night, Rupert pulls up in his car again
1: and apologizes.
0: Where?
1: I don't know, but it, it seemed like I'm always running away from kids. Oh, the joys of fatherhood. Shh. And they get back together and get married. <laughs> yeah,
0: they do. They get married. And then because Charles was part of a protest, they got in a fight with the police and he tried to run to the wedding to hide. Then the police show up and the movie ends with them all in a paddy wagon.
1: But then it cuts to them just walking through the streets holding hands. It's a nice shot. It is a nice shot.
0: I assume that because the paddy wagon did not bother to close the door, they treated it like a bus. And they were like, well, we've gotten to where we're
1: trying to go, so we can just hop out and walk down the street. My favorite thing is the cops helping the children all jump into the paddy wagon. <laughs> right. And being like, I guess we're taking all these kids to jail with us. But I did find the last shot to be kind of jarring. Because it, you didn't like it? I loved the, the shot. It's a really nice shot. But I feel like it kind of undercut from the actual meaning of the ending, which is like, they're together through difficulty, and then it's like, oh, but everything works out. Yeah, I think it's just like the movie is just trying to seize some hope in the end there. It is. And Charles is there. So at least Charles gets out of jail. Exactly. Now, Mark, uh, how do you feel about the romance of Claudine? Do you find all this believable? I think it's mostly believable. I think that James Earl Jones is very charming, and I understand why Claudine would be interested, except for the part where he threatens to turn her in for welfare fraud. That's the thing. (laughs) It's a big turnoff right at the beginning. Uh, Here's my
0: early dating advice. Don't date someone who does that.
1: Yeah, that should be a hard turnoff. But I mean, it's like regardless of that, which will obviously impact its score, I think the rest of the romance proceeds pretty believably in the face of what they are dealing with.
0: Yeah, and like an interesting kind of romance that we don't often see in our rom-coms or rom-dramedies in that it is about... Two people who are very much adults, settled into their adult life, who are trying to find a way to negotiate a relationship within their other, like, real-life responsibilities and not, like, dumb, made-up personality quirks.
1: Right. It's actual struggle instead of... I can't even think of some of the fake fights we've seen in rom-com so far, but this is by far one that actually would lead to people struggling in a relationship.
0: Right. It's not... Like, Hitch or
1: 27 Dresses. Right. Both of which are pretty good movies. So, Will, with this in mind, every week we rate the believability on a 10-point scale, with 1 being the least and 10 the most believable. Where would you rate this movie? Probably like an 8. Yeah, I was thinking an 8. That opening line is bad. <laughs> His, You're talking about vitamin no, F? No, that line, 10 out of 10. <laughs> but the... Uh, threatening to get a date out of her is bad. And I feel like she would not actually bow to that.
0: Or even if she did, she probably wouldn't be as like warmly open at the start of the date as she is.
1: Right. So do you think Claudine or Rupert is dateable?
0: Definitely Claudine more than Rupert.
1: Definitely more than Rupert. I personally want zero children and don't enjoy interacting with children that much. So that would be a deal breaker for me.
0: In both cases, really.
1: In both cases.
0: Claudine much more so, although, like, frankly, it's the thing of, like, you know, Claudine, frankly, doesn't have a lot of time, and
1: that's part of her struggle. I think Claudine and I are in very different situations in life and would not work out. I think that's fair. And Rupert has his problems. Do you think that they will work out? Will Claudine and Rupert stay together? I hope so. They get through all this in a relatively short period of time. I hope so. I think
0: that there will be... Like, some near misses where, like, Rupert goes missing and then comes
1: back. Yeah. But I do think he would come back. It's also just whether Claudine can continue to forgive him. Right. This is a hard one to predict. Yeah. You hope that he's becoming better. Right. If you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? It's tough because there's not a lot of people in this movie. Right. Like, Miss Kayback is a cutie. And she's trying, but no. Maybe his... Trash man partner. Oh. He's nice. Yeah. He's helpful to Claudine
0: when she asks him for help. That's probably like the second best trash man friend performance in a movie. What's number one? Stephen McKinley Henderson in Fences. He's so good. Oh, I haven't seen Fences. Oops. It is good. It is long. Yeah. <laughs> it is a movie that is just full of capital A acting though, and it's a good time.
1: Yeah. Who would you pick? Um I think I'm just going to go with one of the bus ladies. Oh, yeah. Who am I kidding? I'm going with Vitamin F. I'm going with Miss Vitamin F herself, queen of the world. I'll go with uh, Miss Women's Equality. I also like it because she is the oldest and the one you would expect to be the most conservative and is by far the most open about it, too. Yeah. Bus ladies seem fun. They're very supportive. So will. Many of the films we've covered on this podcast have been adapted into stage musicales. Do you think that Claudine should be adapted onto Broadway? I do not.
0: In large part because I think what's exciting about musicals is the way that it heightens things, and the strength of Claudine is that it's not heightened, is that it is so grounded in everyday life. A couple times through the movie, I was thinking that you could make a really good play out of Claudine. Yes. But I don't think that a musical is the way to go, because I think it loses what makes this story special.
1: Right. This story is important because it is a time of all black cinema being heightened. Seeing such a grounded, realistic portrayal of life is what makes it unique and stand out and good.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a really cool movie. And it is on YouTube in its entirety. If you search Claudine movie
1: 1974, it'll show up and it's worth your time. Definitely. I think that is about it for Claudine. Thank you for putting it on the list. I never would have discovered this without you. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's it's fun to discover something like this that should be more widely seen.
1: For sure. Next week, we are taking another hard shift in our schedule <laughs> and covering... This is an Adam Sandler movie, right? It is. It's one of the originals. Uh, we will be watching Billy Madison. Is this the golf one?
0: No, that's Happy Gilmore.
1: Ah, yes, of course. This
0: is the one where, in order to get his inheritance... His dad insists that he go back and, like, pass elementary and high school.
1: Oh, God. I'm not looking forward to this. Until then, you can follow the show. Oh, Will has something to say.
0: I'm just saying, and I'll talk about this more next week. If we are charting the history of romantic comedy, we have to consider the role that, like, bro comedy that is actually secretly a rom-com plays. Like, the Apatow movies are all rom-coms. The Sandler movies are rom-coms. I know, but I don't. Necessarily like them. It's also going to be coming out on my first day of school for the year. So a nice, like, back to school spirit seemed like a way to go.
1: Ah, uh, sure. Of course. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod. And you can email us questions or movie suggestions at Love the at gmail.com. Make
0: sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts to help other people find the show.
1: All right, well Last question What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Claudine? You already gave yours, I guess.
0: Yeah, but if I have to say something else, you know, a first date doesn't have to be big and fancy. It can just be a more casual hangout.
1: My advice is be willing to work with your partner to find the situation that best suits you and understand that sacrifices need to be made.
0: Great. All right, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger.
1: And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.